I would love to have you take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Ephesians. That's where we will be today for a good chunk of our time. And uh, the sermon notes in your bulletin will be very important for you as we move along here this morning. Uh, You remember, if you were with us last week, that we are beginning our fall, as we often do, with a few uh, conversations that remind us of core values. Sometimes we call that our church DNA. Every church has a DNA. It's the stuff you value the most and want to be uh, always having at the front of your, your mind. And we do too. And so last week, as you see under the reminders there, Uh, Last week, we looked at the importance of God's life-giving word, the Bible. We talked about the role of the Bible in a church life and the essential nature of it being the backbone of a church, a local church, and indeed every one of our lives. So God's word, we mentioned there, uh, if you look at that section of reminders, second bullet point, that we have enemies in this pursuit, and we identified the classic three the world, the flesh, and the devil, the world meaning the world system that wants to distract us from anything holy, and the flesh, that's us, sometimes we are our own worst enemy, and then the Bible actually speaks about a very real being called the devil. Some people think of him as only a mythical being. The Bible speaks about a very real uh, supernatural being called the devil who, by the way, doesn't like you at all and would love to ruin your life. So we've spoken about those things. Now, Today, we have uh, our second in this series. There are three. Uh, so last week, the, the Word of God. Today, I put it under the heading of God's, God's glorious and messy church must shape us. And I want to talk today about the local church. Okay? I don't know what comes to your mind immediately when I talk about the church. Uh, sometimes we think quickly of the big C church. There's big C church and little C. Big C meaning the body of Christ around the world and, and, and all kind of a, an idea, certainly a living organism, but bigger. And small, small C church, which we often use to refer to a local body. Okay. So I don't know what comes to your mind. Uh, this last week, I read a book uh, on the church. It's new, just came out. It's called The Loveliest Place crazy title. I know, but it was a good book. And it was, it's based on, in terms of title, on an expression from a person who's now lived and died along with the Lord, who spoke of the church, not just the idea, but the local church, God's people as the loveliest place on earth. Isn't that interesting? And the subtitle here, the beauty and glory of the church. I want to tell you exactly what I'm after today. All right. One, I want to acknowledge very publicly the errors of the church down through the ages. I'm really aware. I read the history. I I watch and listen to the news. And I am aware of things that rock the church, that uh, hit the newspaper, and things that are not right. I'm aware of times in the history of the church when followers of Jesus have been on the wrong side of issues. Got it. I'm also aware of personal hurts. I have met many people through my years who have said, um, either I don't go to church much or I don't go at all. I was really hurt by a church or a person in it some years ago. And to all of those, I, I quickly say, I am so sorry. I am. And also I would say, I have been hurt too. I have been doing something like what I'm doing now for 41 years. And I I know something about the inner workings of churches. 
And I know sometimes they can be messy, capital letters, bolded, underlined, and be hurt. Mm -hmm. Um, If you've said at times, I don't know if I really want to hang out there, I will not judge you. Okay? But, but, the church is still the bride of Christ, a glorious, a glorious organism, a living organism with Jesus Christ as her head. And I want to make very clear today that as we look at the Bible and we see the beauty and glory of the church, I want you to know if you uh, really understood what I was just saying a moment ago, I don't want you to hear me in any way putting down hurt or pain or disappointment. Okay? I'm wanting to talk about the other part. Okay? That's the part I want to grab. The beauty and glory of the church as God designed, as God intended, as, and as we will one day be perfected in his presence. Okay? So that's what I'm after. Uh, both of those, I want to acknowledge the, the, the first, the hurt, and, and yet paint a picture of God's glorious church. And I want to do that without apology. Okay? Because that's what the Bible does. And so I go there. So I'd love to pray for us that God will help us with all of this and together we'll see and understand what it is God is doing through the church. So pray with me, if you would, please. Our Father, we come today again to the Word of God here to have our minds and our hearts changed by you, the work of the Spirit of God, here to align ourselves with the way you think. Because any place where we think differently, we're wrong. You are the one who sees everything, past, present, future, in its entirety. You're the one who knows. You've never made a mistake. You've never called it wrong. You've never been unwise or unkind like we have. And so, our Father, we want to think like you think, to love what you love, and to turn away from the things that you turn away from. So would you help us right now, all of us coming from such different places, certainly, different experiences, different things already in our minds for the morning. But would you meet us here in your word and help us now? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, then. So if you look at your sermon notes, let me just lay out how this is going to go. The first section called A Vision of God's Glorious Church will be the longest section. I tell you that so that if you think, good night, he's staying here forever, and there's these other parts, it's okay, all right? So I got it. So the first part is the longest. We'll be there a few more minutes, and then the other two are going to be shorter, but nonetheless, we will visit them. Excuse me for that. So in the book of Ephesians, uh, we have preached through this whole book at some length uh, down through the years, uh, twice, I believe, in the last 20 that I've been around. But in the book of Ephesians, you find a picture of what God has done, very clearly painted. He put a book of Ephesians written by the Apostle Paul, one of the prison epistles. He's writing this from jail. And it's a, it's a book that in the first part, um, some would say paints a picture of what God is doing. And then in the second half, starting in chapter 4, it's, it's, it's what some have called the practical section, where he says, now in light of all that, Here's the way it ought to be. But here in the first part, I'm going to look with you at chapter 1, starting at verse 3. Some of this, with, with great apologies, I'm going to surf very quickly. And I say apologies because there is such richness and depth. I hate to move through it quickly, but I'm going to. And then when we get to verse 15, I'm going to slow down and read a section. All of this under the heading of a vision of God's glorious church. I want us to see what the Bible says. Okay? So... 
Paul begins the book of Ephesians with the normal, customary greeting at the time, writing to the church in Ephesus. That was an ancient city, of course, and he's writing to the church that's gathered there. So it's a local, a local expression of the church. And among the things that he says, now verse 3, which you perhaps you know, verse 3 to 14 is one long sentence. Your English teacher would have hated this. But he, the way it was written in the, in the original manuscript and so on, one long sentence. All the periods you might have, we added them to, so we could take a breath. All right? But here's, here's what we're looking at. So Paul begins in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Now he's going to talk about what those are. He chose us in him, verse 4. He predestined us, verse 5. Wow, that's a big idea. In verse 8, there's this grace that he has lavished upon us. And you remember some of my um, illustrations of this. I hope you do. They spring instantly to my mind. Lavished is the hot fudge Sunday with more than the extra hot fudge. It's pouring on more, way more than is needed. So that's what God has done. He lavished his grace upon us. In verse 8, As in verses 12 and 13, it says, to the praise of his glory or to the praise of his glorious grace, all that he is doing in loving his people and preparing life for us and giving us redemption and inheritance, all of this he's doing for his praise, for his glory. Now, he, he waxes eloquent about that, like he pauses to take a breath at the end of verse 14, and then he says, okay, for this reason, and I want to read the next section. Okay, so look with me, verse 15. For this reason, all that he has just said, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. And that's just a cool word that means all the people who know Jesus, saints. He uses that word perfect. Oh, not yet, but one day will be. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your heart enlightened so that you'd know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Now watch this. And he put all things under his feet. This is God the Father put all all things under the feet of Jesus, his, his son, and gave him, gave Christ as the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So all of this glory to Christ And we read that God the Father placed him as head over all things to the church. Now, I'm going to be melding today uh, big church, all the body of Christ, and local church. At times, I'll call out differences, but I will just trust you to understand what I mean here. It's interesting. God gave Jesus the role of head over the church. Do you think for a moment he said, hey, listen, I want to apologize in advance. It's going to get messy. Well, no. Jesus knew that which is why he died on the cross for all the stuff we've done that we shouldn't have and all the good that we should have done, but we haven't. So, so Jesus understood this is a messy proposition. It's going to be full of imperfect people. Keep looking for all the perfect ones, but there are none. So an imperfect body and God, the father places Jesus as the head over the church. 
his body, his living representation in this world. Now, he moves right along. I'm going to move quickly through these, some big sections of Ephesians. He steps right into chapter 2, talking about what a wonderful thing God has done in Christ. He says, all of us, verse 1 of chapter 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We've really messed it up. And then he says in verse 4, God, but God, rich in mercy... Here's what he did. He drew us to himself in Christ. Verse 8, by grace you've been saved. And then he works his way down, glory upon glory, into the the last couple paragraphs of chapter 2. And you come to verse 13. Stay with me on this, please. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Okay, what is this? Who are these people who are far off? Make sense of this. This is very contemporary, okay? What's being spoken of in this text is the Gentile crowd, the non-Jewish crowd, being pulled right into the presence of God. So uh, Old Testament, New Testament, you find the nation of Israel as kind of the hub. And then when the church begins, God does something completely new. And this matters to us today because God intends that the church, the people who know Jesus, imperfect, I got it, I got it, that in the church there would be a combining, a drawing together of very different peoples people who, are, who have different history and culture and people who might not normally hang out because that's what's going on here. The Gentiles did not orm- normally hang out with the good Jewish folks. I mean, we underestimate the, diff- the divide between the two, okay? Jewish people, if you, you, know, you kind of went out in the market and bought stuff and you didn't buy it from all Jewish people, you got home, you washed your hands because it was touched by those people. And it wasn't about germs. It was like it was touched by, you know, those guys. So I should wash my hands. And now God comes along and says, and let's put you into the same family. Different food choices, different music choices, different ethnic and cultural values and backgrounds, different language things, all kinds of differences. And God says, I have this wonderful plan to put you together in one family and you get to love each other for all your differences. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. We, in our humanity, we tend to divide and say, well, I kind of like to hang out with people like, you know, like, like me. <laughs> yeah. And God says, no, no, I'm going to make something different here. I'm going to make this thing called the church. And Jesus is going to be the glue that draws together people who are very different from one another. It's the only glue that works. Okay. All the other stuff that people try, sit-down meetings and so on, I get it, but we tend to polarize. Man, have we seen this. God had a plan. Now in Christ Jesus, he says, I'm in 2.13, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He is our peace. He's made both groups, Jew and Gentile, one, and he's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Of course, that's a reference to uh, the, the, the temple, Whereas, you know, the Jewish temple at the time, there were sections. There were sections that the Jewish people could come, and that was closer. And then there was another thing called the court of the Gentiles, those guys. And it was, you know, like in the back of the room, back of the bus, that kind of thing. And here comes Jesus, and he takes the wall down. And he says, everybody come near. So this is revolutionary stuff. It's revolutionary in our day when it works right. When the church draws together people very different from one another, might not normally hang out, but you hang out together because you both know Jesus. And he died on the cross for all of us, imperfect people. And he gives us love for each other. Now, that's, that's something amazing. Now, chapter 2 goes on about that. Come to chapter 3. I want to pick up a couple verses. Now, in chapter 3, 
this thing, this church is called a mystery. So it's called that in chapter three, verse three, and again in verse four, and again in verse six, and down in verse nine. But the term mystery here does not mean Alfred Hitchcock or, you know, Agatha Christie. It means here something that was previously not revealed by God. So this is like a new thing. It's a mystery. It's something you discover. What is it? So he's talking about it, Paul says, and then he defines it in chapter three, verse six. Here it is. This previously unrevealed thing, this mystery is that the Gentiles, the non-Jewish peoples are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And this is mind blowing. You have to hear this in the text. The apostle Paul is saying this, not having just learned it, but, but it's blowing his mind. He says, man, I'm this Jewish guy. And there's this thing God has revealed that those people where we normally washed our hands and didn't kind of hang out, they're now members of the same body. They drink of the same spiritual cup. We belong to Jesus together. And then he goes on. Here's the part. I want to read 7 to 10. Okay? He says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power to me, Paul says, though I'm the very least of all the saints. This grace was given to preach to the nations, ethnos, the ethnic groups, the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Here it is. So that through the church, you see this? So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, spiritual beings. So verse 10 begins with so that it's a purpose clause okay it's giving the reason why so that all this is done so that through the church the wisdom of god would be seen to spiritual beings and indeed to the watching world what else breaks down barriers that are so deep well god intended that that would be done in the local church the barriers that i don't hang out with hold on who Oh, yeah, we do. It's called the church. It's called the church. That's God's intent for a local church, a local expression. It's not just some ethereal idea for somebody else. No, it's, it's, it's us. And Paul, as he reflects on this, I, you have to hear his heart in verse 8. To me, he says, this grace was given. It's like he's saying, I can hardly believe it. I have this privilege to preach to the nations The unsearchable, NAS, New American Standard says, the unfathomable, unmeasurable riches of Christ. You don't even know all that God has planned for you. It's Ephesians 2, 7. Then the ages to come, he could show forth the exceeding riches of his grace in kindness toward us through Christ. We don't even know half of what God has planned. Just enough to say, and I want to go there. I want to be with him forever because I don't know what it's all about, but it's going to be great. And Paul says, I get to preach this. What an amazing privilege. He doesn't say, you know what? It's awful. Now, he's going to come close, as we're going to see in 2 Corinthians. Very shortly, we're going to be preaching 2 Corinthians. Second Sunday in October, we begin. Paul Paul knew what it meant to hang out with imperfect people and get beaten up for it and spit upon and nearly die many, many times. Okay? So so he's not all glassy-eyed, but he's, he's still amazed I get to preach this message. What an amazing thing God has done. I get to tell people about this. The church should represent this. 
Okay, one more text. Uh, chapter 3, I want to go to 20 and 21. Okay, and almost there, almost there. I'm going to pause and I want to talk about some other details. Ephesians 3, verse 20, he's going to pray a wonderful prayer starting in verse 14. He says in verse 20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think, according to the power at work in us, Spirit of God, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. So there should be glory to God through the church. That's what he says. He's writing to a local church. There should be the glory of God should be seen in the church. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. One more text here, chapter 5, and this is the text from which people often speak at, at, at weddings. Uh, other times, think about marriage and things like that. Uh, Ephesians five twenty-two to 33, indeed, big section, wives, husbands, and so on. But even as Paul says throughout it, that's not the point. We quickly take husbands and wives as the point. Paul says that's not the point. It's, I'm just using this as an illustration, he says. I'm really talking about something else. I'm using marriage as an illustration. And that's what he's doing here. I pick it up at verse 25. He says, husbands, love your wives as as Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. That is to grow her in holiness, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. He says it again in verse 29, as Christ does the church. And then he comes again in verse 32, this mystery is great, but I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. You picking up what he's laying down? He's really talking about Christ in the church, the love of Christ for the church, the sacrificial nature of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. But he's using marriage as an illustration, a kind of a sidebar. This is, I, I think this is interesting and unknown by many. Some of our, what we call our traditional elements with weddings and how they're to be done and engagements, it really is based on the Bible. Did you know that? It wasn't just made up by, by a male-centered culture. Who, who decided that the guy should, should um, you know, propose to the girl? Well, that's just culture. No, no, actually not. Please know your history. It came from the Bible. It's patterned on Christ loving the church first. Who initiated in the relationship between Christ and the church? You? Are you that smart? No. We love because he first loved us. The Apostle John would say, we love because. So the idea that Christ initiated first. That's where it came from, folks, that the, the guy is supposed to propose to the young lady. It's supposed to be Christ initiating with the church and so on. In, a, in a, most weddings, who, who does their vows first? Well, the guy's supposed to go, uh-uh, how come? Because in this moment, you represent Jesus, and the bride represents the church. That's where, that's where it came from. All kinds of other wedding traditions that people go, ah, that's just tradition. Uh-huh, yes, and it was designed to picture the gospel. And we toss them sometimes because we don't know that or we minimize the value. So Christ in the church, marriage is supposed to point. Marriage isn't the end in itself. Marriage is supposed to point people to the love of God for an imperfect bride. Of course, the, in our case, the groom isn't all that either. Uh, Christ sure is. Now, I want to go then to the, your sermon notes. May I say a couple of things here, please? If there were to be a single 
um, statement here that is my thesis for the morning. It's the first one. You could just, I could have put that in bold. That's the main point. You could read that and go home. This is the main point. God loves the church. Christ died for the church, not simply for a theoretical institution, but for its local expression. God loves the local church. There, I said it. All right? Is that okay? You guys doing okay? <clears throat> so then I'm going to go to the next one. And you'll um, please indulge me by allowing me to read this. Mostly. I'll stop along the way. But I want to say a couple things here. Despite its many and public flaws that I've referred to already, despite its many and very public flaws, the local church has an impressive track record. Not only individually, but collectively. That is thousands of local churches that exist. Did you know that people who study local churches would tell you that in America, uh, it's something like 90%, 90% thereabouts of churches are 100 people or smaller. Did you know that 90%? Did you know that? We often have, uh, see the big ones, the mega churches and think, man, that is enormous. And everybody else is there. And here I am in this little tiny church. Actually, that's a normal church. 90% or smaller. Sunset Bible, our mother campus here, even apart from the other two who are now part of our, our church family, <clears throat> somewhere in the 400s, that's in the top 10% of church sizes in America. Who would have thought? But that's statistics. So we sometimes look at all the big public and uh, flaws and falls. I, I know they hurt me too. But I'm saying this. The local church has survived for 2,000 years. That is stunning. Flawed as it is, the local church has survived and done a number of things that are commendable. The church has loved and cared for millions, led millions of people to Christ. The people, let me just say this, the people who, who pointed your little heart to Jesus, maybe it was you in Sunday school 50 years ago or longer, I dare not guess. But guess what? Every one of them were flawed. Every one of them went home and had a fight with their husband or wife or yelled at their kids and kicked the dog. All of them. See? And they pointed you to Jesus because God uses people who weren't perfect. It's a good thing. If God uses you, and he does and he will, you know, he's not waiting for you to get it all figured out either because you clearly haven't. Uh, neither have I, of course. Now, led millions to Christ, taught the word of God, sent missionaries, started schools, hospitals, and orphanages in obscure and far-flung areas, fed the hungry, changed society, and so much more, all in the face of danger, opposition, and indifference. Indeed. So, well, many in looking at history would point to the Crusades and things, and I wouldn't defend any of that. But I would say this, there are other parts in history that the songs that should be sung of people who in the name of Jesus went at great cost and sacrifice and changed the world because of it. And I'm just going to mention a couple. You can read these stories. They're all over the place. I use this as examples of the church because the church is people. It's not like a building went and did brave things. It's people who went and did things in the name of Jesus. Uh, maybe you've heard the name John Patton, P-A-T-O-N, not general, not him. Uh, John Patton, a missionary. Okay, this is back a few years. He had his mind and heart set on taking the news of Jesus to what was called at the time New Hebrides. Now we call it Vanuatu. Now, he was planning to go there because he knew there was this island with a whole bunch of people who didn't know Jesus. 19 years previously to this moment... 
Two other guys had gone there to take the good news of Jesus. They really, honestly, they barely got to shore. And the natives there killed them and ate them. Yeah, they were cannibals. Now John is planning to go some years later with his wife. See any problems here? Well, he was meeting with other believers and planning to go. And a guy who's now immortalized, um, Mr. Dixon, he's called. This was his expression. He said, Mr. Dixon exploded. The cannibals, you will be eaten by cannibals. Thank you very much. John Patton's recorded and immortal reply. He says, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now. And your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave there to be eaten by worms. No, really, he said that. Imagine a church meeting like this. Wow. He says, I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Thank you, John Patton. And off he sailed with his wife to the island of, uh, we could say, Vanuatu. Now, there to take the gospel. No, they didn't eat him. Um, they served there and in some other of the islands nearby. He built the casket for his wife with his own hand and dug the grave himself. And their young son. He built the casket. Don't, don't tell me he didn't care. Don't tell me he wasn't willing to pay a price. It's because he so treasured the gospel. He wasn't trying to earn a medal. See, you know, he was, he was saying it matters so much that they'd hear the story of Jesus. I'm going to go. And it may cost me more than I know today, but I'm going. And that's what I'm going to do. And he did, along with his wife. Um, Adoniram Judson, Adoniram and Ann Judson, maybe you know some of the story there. They were headed to India at one point. God directed them to Burma, now called Myanmar. But they had the same mindset. And I just want to read a little part of uh, Adoniram. This is how you don't ask a father for permission to marry his daughter. He wrote a letter Here's what he says to dear dad. I ask you now whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to hardships and sufferings of missionary life, that you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, where they thought they were going, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. It goes on from there. He's not any, not any more cheerful. That's, that's what he writes to this girl's dad. I'd like to marry your daughter. You're never going to see her again, but can you get, I mean, what do you think, dad? Dad said, I'll let her decide. Yeah, and she married him. And within 30 days, they're on a boat heading to the mission field where she would die. And indeed, her dad and mom would never see her again. But the story of what they did in that far-flung country, is legendary. So why? What was the point? What are you doing? To, because the, the story of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, is worth that much. Yes, it changes societies. I was thinking earlier of, of Ethan and Melissa Molsey, some of you know. Dr. Dr. Mrs. Molsey. Ethan is a hospital administrator, wife, a doctor, wonderful in a mostly a Muslim majority country. You need a a, a woman who's a doctor if you understand culture at all. Why are they there? Loving people who generally don't like them and don't believe what they believe. Why? What are you doing? As, As Paul would write, the love of Christ compels me. 
See, so for all, I'm saying for all the flaws of the church, I get it. But there are people who represent the church who have gone and sacrificed and pointed people to Jesus and yes, changed the world. If you travel, you look at my, my other notes here, hospitals and orphanages. If you travel at all to obscure places, you will very well find little schools or hospitals or clinics. And I would bet you dollars and donuts, most of them, not all, most of them were started by somebody, some stripe in the name of Jesus. So, so fault the church all you like, but you'd better acknowledge historical good done in the name of Jesus all around this planet. Okay? Not only big church, independent, small churches, local churches. Okay, I, I want to go to this text <clears throat> in Revelation. If you'd go there with me, please. Revelation 21. Just a quick look ahead, and then I promise we'll move to those other two sections, and they'll go quickly. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. This section is your assurance that all the flaws of today are temporary, including yours, okay? Because there'll be a day, if you know Jesus, there'll be a day all things, including you and me, will be made new. Okay, Revelation 21 then. This is the Apostle John, and God is allowing him to see the future. A future that will happen just like this. He sees the actual future. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That's the same phrase that's used about the church. Prepared as a bride for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man or mankind. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You remember this from the book of Isaiah, referencing Old Testament prophecy. We saw that as we studied Isaiah. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more, a death shall be no more, sorry. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I make all things new. By the way, that includes you. If you know Jesus... Your and my are many and storied flaws. All the things that people have told you about you for a long, long time and you haven't fixed it all. All those. All the things that you've covered really well so other people don't see because they, they wouldn't like you. All of that. Gone. Same guy, Paul or John, here would write 1 John 3 that one day we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. 1 John 3, 2. We'll see him as he is. We'll be like him in that day. So all the flaws of which people look today at the church, yes, yes, and yes, I know. There will be a day when God is done with his purposes here on this earth, when those who know Jesus will be made perfect with him. Can you imagine? I mean, that's a big eraser, (laughs) isn't it? Cleaning us up. And that's all because Jesus died on the cross. That's why. Now, I move to my next section, and I'm, go- I'm not going to read all these. I'm going to reference them. So turn over the page. And not only a vision of God's glorious church, which was really the main thing I wanted to say, but these, God is not unaware of the mess, and neither is Paul. I say it again, lest you think I'm overlooking something. I'm not. 
So the epistles are full of imperfections. People, for goodness sakes. It'd be a wonderful place, except for all the people. Yes, Paul writes to the church at Corinth, and he starts right off in chapter 1 saying, I can't believe it, there's divisions among you. You are a polarized people. Some of you say, I'm from Paul, I'm of Paulus, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. Congratulations, everybody. And he goes after in that book, you know, we've preached through it, division, racial, and ethnic injustice. It's right there in that same local church. False teaching, immorality, it's right there. Paul could easily look at that and say, you know what, <laughs> let, me, let me just say this, you guys are a big mess. So we're going to close her down, move down the street, and start 2 Corinthians Church. And, uh, you know, we'll have higher standards than y'all. No, he, he knows the next church he'd start to, part B, part C, go down the road, it's messed up too. Just maybe differently. Okay, it is. So Paul rolls up his sleeves and gets in there. Galatians 1 I am amazed, he says, that you so quickly turned aside from the one who called you by his grace for a different gospel. Oh, by the way, there isn't another one. That's Galatians 1.6. I cannot believe it. I left town and you're sniffing after false teachers. What's wrong with you people? That's Galatians 1. You have to love it. He speaks real clearly. Philippians 2. This is kind of fun too. He's writing to a church in Philippi. And there's these two ladies who apparently aren't getting along enough to where the whole church knows. Because he just says it in a letter. Dear so-and-so, how are y'all? Blessings on every... And he gets down to chapter 4 and says, I urge you, Odia and Syntyche, to live in harmony in the Lord. It's like, would you two ladies stop it? That could have easily been two men. He doesn't tell them they must become best friends and have coffee all the time. He doesn't say that. He just says, live in harmony. Can you guys just, like, I don't know, figure it out? And he tells them by name. And Paul does it too. All these texts in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, he's calling out people by name. And he's saying, these people have, have hurt us. Uh, Hymenaeus and Philetus, um, uh, this guy named Alexander, he's done us a lot of harm. Demas, this guy who was with me, he's loved this present world. He left. This other guy left. Only Luke is with me. Bring Mark. I need him. It's the Apostle Paul. He's calling out by name people who have left the faith, deconstructed, loved this present world too much. And, and, and he says, you know what? I, I, Second Timothy 4, I fought a good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. He doesn't give up on the church. He, he charges the pastor. That's Timothy, a pastor of the church of Ephesus, young guy. Hang in there with the church, Timothy. I know people have left. I know they beat me up. They'll beat you up too. Hang in there with them. Don't give up. I go to my final little bullet point here, not a text, just a little, remember this. We live in an easily offended generation. I'm saying, remember COVID. May I be blunt? Um, as you know, pretty divisive time for a lot of people. Churches, many are struggling right now still because people have left. And guess what else? A lot of pastors have left. Did you know that? We have churches in our organization right now, IFCA, um, who, who can't find a pastor. Local church here in town, they've been looking for five years. The stack of resumes that used to be thick is very, very thin. Any ideas why? Well, I don't know about you know, all of it, but I know in the last three years, there's been a mass exodus of pastors. Because you know what? It didn't matter what your view was. You didn't do it right. There was such diversity. You know this. I'm not telling you what you don't know. Of opinion about how it all ought to be done. Whether it was this way or this way. It didn't matter. You're going to be accused of being unloving. Everybody used that one. 
If you were really loving, you'd see it this way. And then the other guy's going, that's not true at all. If you were really loving, you'd see it this way. Wow. Medical people divided. Some, I know this because I'm I'm I work in this set. Yeah, uh-huh. and I got three other people who work in a very similar setting, and they don't agree with you at all. And all of them tell me. And enough pastors chewed up and spit out and said, I'm out. I will do anything else. I will do anything else. But I'm not going to do this. This isn't just in America, too. This is in other parts of the world. I have contact from some other ministries in, in other parts of the world. Same kind of deal. Discouraged pastors. Many who quit. Just said, you know what? Sell real estate. Um, work in a store. I'm just tired of being yelled at. Yeah. Devices? Oh, sure. God, all I'm saying, God is not unaware of the mess. And he loves the church. And he calls us to more and better. Uh, if you were to write down a list of things wrong with any local church, including ours, I got a hunch I could read it, your list, and add to it stuff you don't know. <laughs> it's worse than you think, all right? It's worse than you think. Yeah, you guys might have missed that. I know, I know. Um, and, and more. Wow, are you kidding? There's an underbelly. Yeah, I, I know. And God loves the church. He loves the church because his glory, the gospel, is spread through the church, imperfect as she is. Christ died for the church, imperfect as she is. He died for you and for me. See? Not saying, I'll wait till you figure it out. Go to my last section there. Um, The glory of God is still seen in the messy local church. I gave you a few texts there just to ruminate on. As churches get along, as we do it, even, even imperfectly stagger along, uh, try to get it better, try to get it right, forget something you just learned a year ago, should have done that better. I know, forgot, sorry. We figure it out. God's glory is still seen as people love each other, surrender their opinions, uh, practice humility. I say if you're a follower of Jesus, God intends that you'd be a vital part of his imperfect local church. He does. I started off by mentioning people who say they like Jesus, but not the church. That's in the section called today's text. And I, I, I really struggle with that. I get the point. But let me just say this, all right? If you came to me and said, Pastor, we really like you, but we really don't like your wife. Could you come over for dinner? Do you know what the chances are of me coming to your house for dinner? Really, really small. See? And you're going to say to Jesus, look, I really like you and Savior and Redeemer and all, but I don't like your church, you know, your bride. I mean, help me out here, folks. Uh, Not the way it works. Jesus would say, wait, 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 hold on. I died on the cross for all of this family. See? Including you. And if you're yelling about the flaws, you're part of it, for goodness sakes. You're part of what's wrong with the place. You know, you got a lot of problems. I know, and you're... I could go on. (laughs) And I'm one of it. I'm part of that problem, one of the problems. I know, I know. So I'm saying here, attending worship at a local church is not something you do only if you have no better offers. I really mean that. God intends, if you know Jesus, you should be, you should be a vital part of a local church. Amen. Don't wait till you get to the perfect one. You'll never find it. And if you do, of course, don't join it. You're going to ruin it. You will. You're going to ruin it. Yeah. And my fourth point, if you're waiting for the local church to get its act together before showing up faithfully and jumping in there and getting involved, you might as well get on board immediately because that's never going to happen. That's my point there. And by the way, we're waiting for you to get your act together too. I say that with a smile, but I mean it. Okay. So 
Finally, the church better. I know, I know. And you too. So what does that mean? Well, love messy people. I know because you're one to be patient with the many imperfections of, of any church, any church. And, and submit to involvement, commitment, service, life-shaping influence through groups, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, I gave you at the top of that section a couple texts from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 3, that text talks about encouraging one another all the more as you see the, the day drawing near, lest any of you, it says, I'm getting it out of order, lest any of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We need each other. And may I say again to our online audience, if you're joining us online because you really can't come here physically, you're older or you're someplace else, uh, blessings on you. We're so glad you're with us. On the other hand, if you really could be here, you know, I love you. You should come. You should come. We're waiting for you to come back. There's a place, but come, please find a local church. If you're another part of the country, another part of the state, find a local church and go because you're needed there and they, they need you and you need them. You do. Amen. I think that that's true. So all of that, God's glorious and messy church, must shape us. If you heard me say anything today, it's this. God loves the church. Christ died for the church. The big C church and the local church. Every local expression of it. Imperfect, yes. God loves the local church. I hope you do too. I want to pray. All right? Would you stand with me, please? Our Father, thank you so much that we have a Savior, a Savior in, in Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, who suffered on Calvary's cross for all the things we've done that are wrong and all the good things we should have done and we didn't get around to it. Thank you for Jesus, Savior, Redeemer, and friend. And I, I, I thank you, Father, that you have redeemed us for yourself, that in the local church and every local expression of your big church body, that there would be glory, glory seen as people break down barriers and dividing walls that separate people from one another and and find common cause in the gospel of Jesus. We divide so easily. Father, give us a tenacity that says even when things are uncomfortable or, uh, and me too, when things hurt or somebody chews on us, that we would say for Jesus' sake, for Jesus' sake, I'll take it. For Jesus' sake, I'll show up again. For the sake of the one who died for me, I'm not going to just give up and walk away. So help us, Father, to do this. For the glory of Christ alone is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.